Well, it's a great honor to be with you and worship with you this morning and to hear from the Lord. And that's what we want to do. That's what we need Amen. now more than ever. Um, God's Word is powerful. I've been encouraged by some stories that I've heard um, from, a, from a, a some during the season with uh, extra time on our hands, um, reading the Bible more than they have before, and being blessed by it, and and so the Lord has a the Lord um, works in mysterious ways, but everything works for His glory, and um, and uh, and His Word is the the primary agent of Him affecting His will in the world, especially in His people. And so we're going to continue our series uh, this morning through the book of Matthew, and we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about God, possessions, and eternity. Let me turn my mic on here. God, God possessions, and eternity. Uh, but before we get started, let's pray together again. Lord, we just thank you now for this opportunity this privilege, God, to gather together and worship you, Lord. Um, um, one, uh, one man who uh, passed away recently, apologist Ravi Zacharias, Lord, your faithful servant, once said that um, something to the effect of, we have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of law books um, because we can't keep Ten Commandments written in stone. And um, that's, that's true, Lord. We, we need your word. We need your spirit, God, to believe it, to trust it, to apply it, to obey it. Um, and especially, God, we need your grace to hear what the Lord Jesus wants to teach us today, Lord. He taught some unusual things. He taught some remarkable things. He taught, um, he taught us some things that are the complete opposite, Lord, of the way the world thinks about things, and Lord, we want to be an otherworldly people. Lord, a people um, who have the aroma of heaven about us, Lord. And so we just ask for grace, we ask for faith, God, to be that people, Lord, that your name would be lifted high on the, in this earth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and as you do, I want to share with you this illustration Randy Alcorn shared in his book, The Treasure Principle. Uh, if you've never read that book, I highly encourage you to do so. In fact, I think I have an extra copy if somebody wants it. Um, but it's his book, The Treasure Principle. Randy Alcorn's a great, incredible man of God. He's written a number of books. He writes both fiction and nonfiction. He has an incredible story, which I encourage you to go read about sometime. He got arrested uh, and charged at one time because of because of a peaceful protest outside an abortion clinic, and they sued him, and they were going to garner his wages to you know as a result of that lawsuit and so what he did was that there was a minimum amount that he could make that they wouldn 't be able to take money from, and so in order not to give a single dime to an abortion clinic he he, he, from his ministry, he took the minimum salary that he could possibly make. So he gives away every single penny of the proceeds from his books so that not a single dime of that money goes to the abortion clinic. Just an incredible man of God. But he, he wrote this book, 
uh, the treasure principle about how we think about money. And he shares this illustration. He says, he says, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Uh, That's it. As a Christian, he says, you have inside knowledge. As a Christian, we have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. And either event could happen at any time. Investment experts known as market timers read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn, then recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable vehicles such as money markets, treasury bills, or certificates of deposit. Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us once and for all to switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and is coming soon to forever replace earth's economy. Christ's financial forecast for earth is bleak, but he's unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven, where every market indicator is eternally positive. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money, even though you know it's about to become worthless. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. I think, I think he's right. <laughs> Your perspective changes everything, and he's absolutely right. Gold doesn't matter to God. The streets are paved with it in glory. He doesn't need that. He doesn't care about that. We'll all stand penniless before God, except what we sent ahead of us. And that's the lesson that we have this morning from our passage in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of God. You may be seated. So I want to explore this uh, passage under three headings this morning. Number one, we're going to talk about storing treasure. Number one, storing treasure. Number two, seeing clearly. Number two, seeing clearly. And then number three, serving the king. 
Number three, serving the king. So storing treasure, seeing clearly, and serving the king. So number one here, I want to talk about storing treasure. We saw this in the first few verses that we just read there. And so first of all, what I wanted to do is just kind of catch us up on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which we talked about, really lays the foundation of the sermon because the, the, the main thing, despite what, how many people twist the sermon, the main thing Jesus is after is the condition of the heart, which is the Beatitudes address. That is that Christianity is first and foremost a heart religion. It's, it's, more, about, it's more about the heart and your motive and your love for God and for neighbor than it, uh, b- before it is about what you do. Of course, if you love God and love neighbor, that, that must affect what you do. But you can, you can be externally religious and not love God and not love people. And so what Jesus and what Christianity is primarily after is the human heart. And he moves from the Beatitudes then to what we call the antitheses, where Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say, but I say to you. And in that section, especially Jesus is, 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 has come and where he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, Jesus is saying that, that his teaching is the fulfillment of the law. It is what the law was pointing to. The law dealt, dealt primarily with externals, but Jesus has come to deal with the heart. And because of that, it's not enough just to not commit adultery because to lust is commit adultery. It's not enough just to not commit murder because to be angry with your brother in your heart is to commit murder. And so it's more than just the external behaviors, but it's the condition of your heart. And so the, the law pointed to something greater than itself. The law pointed to a, a time when not just people wouldn't commit adultery, but, but that, they wouldn't even, that they wouldn't even lust after people, not just that people wouldn't murder, but it pointed to a time when people's hearts would be so pure by the power of the Holy Spirit that they wouldn't even get unjustly angry with their brother. And, and then in the section following the antitheses, Jesus uh, especially attacks uh, religious hypocrisy, which we've been, we've, we've been talking about, you know, where he talks about pray in secret, give in secret, fast in secret. You know, it's possible to do all these things, but do so in a hypocritical sense, out of love of the praise of men rather than desire to be rewarded by God. And so Jesus moves from this religious pride and hypocrisy to our posture towards the world to our posture towards the world. So just as it's, there's a dangerous temptation to pride in our piety or religiousness, there's also a deadly temptation, Jesus says, of uh, love of stuff, love of the world, love of things, love of gifts over the giver. And Jesus is pleading with his followers to take stock of eternity, right? Because that changes everything. It, that's, one of the, that's one of the key and foundational teachings of the Bible that, that change, that, that separates Christians in the way they live from the way the world lives because we believe in eternity. We believe that this world isn't all that there is. We believe that we'll have to give an account for what we have done in the body. And that to live for God now is to, is to give and sacrifice and, and serve and deny ourselves for the glory of God and for the good of others because that will mean full and lasting joy forever. Whereas if we pursue ourselves now in temporal happiness, then we, we might just get it for a few decades and then enter into a Christless eternity. So eternity changes everything about how we live and think about the world. And Jesus is pleading with us to think in these terms. Uh, he says here, not to lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What a great temptation that there is, right? What a great temptation to store up treasure on earth, money, stuff, things, property, more, 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 right? How much, I mean, how much stuff do we have that's just collecting dust? How much, how much stuff is just going to be left behind and, 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 and be of no commendation to us before God? Jesus says we cannot live like this. Why? He gives us several reasons. He says, because if we store up treasure in this world in the form of possessions or properties or comforts or luxuries, and we can even broaden this principle, I believe, to just the world in general, if our hope is in the things of this world... If our hope is in our stuff or if our security, if our sense of comfort and security is found in our stuff or in our house or in our insurance policies or the stock market or the state of the government or the economy or anything in this world, Jesus says that kind of hope is ultimately foolish. It's foolish because those things will not and cannot last. Moth and rust will destroy all of your stuff. You know how many human civilizations have lived before this? You know how much of their stuff remains? Not much. Not much. Moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves will break in and steal. Looters will break in and steal. The government will break in and steal and seize your property. Happens all the time in other parts of the world. It might might start happening here when the government stops when the government starts thinking that what you believe is dangerous. It's futile. It's foolish to store up stuff here because stuff here can't last. And Jesus makes this point very clearly. Whatever you have stored up here, you can't take it with you. It's impossible. You can't take it with you. The wealthiest people in the world the people who have billions and billions and billions of dollars of net worth, they'll stand before God penniless. That's all there is to it. And they won't, Jesus, God won't be impressed by how much money they made. He's, in fact, it's probably going to be more like this. I gave you billions of dollars for you to have on this earth. What did you do with it for me? In fact, their money will cry out against them on the last day. Because it wasn't theirs, it was God's, and they wasted it on themselves. And not for God and his kingdom and his glory. It's foolish. You can't take it with you. Every copper penny we have belongs to God, and everyone will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account for what we did with his money. That's what Jesus told parables about that, having his servants, that the master gives certain amount of his property. Why? Because it's his property. It's not ours. It belongs to God. And when we realize that, we'll start, we'll start thinking differently, right? Because you spend someone else's money differently than you spend your own. At least I hope you would. Because it's not mine. It belongs to somebody else. And it's, it's my obligation to use it for his purposes. And then we'll have to account. And I, I pray and I hope with my life and with your lives that when he, the master returns, we'll be able to say, look, master, you gave me this much. But look, it has produced this much of profit in your kingdom, in your business, for, for, my fa- for the father's business and for your purposes. 
And then the master will say to that servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. When we have storing up treasure in heaven is what is making our, it's making Christ's business our business. You see so many people, so many people in this world, they're scrambling, scrambling. They're so busy about their business. Your business won't last. Only Christ's business will last. So Jesus pleads with his church. He pleads with his church. Be wise, my church. Don't be fools, my people. You can't keep it if you store it here. So send it ahead. Give to the needy. Help the struggling brother. Take care of the widows and the orphans. Support the ministry of your church. Give to see Christ made known among the nations. There are all kinds of wonderful ways to do this. There are all kinds of wonderful, there are all kinds of wonderful ministries. There, you, there are people in our communities, our friends and neighbors, and just people right here who need our help that we can minister to for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are organizations. There's the local church that we support as members of this church to give to the glory of God. There are, there are organizations like the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board that we take up offerings for that are fruitful and faithful vehicles to make Christ known in other parts of the world. There are organizations that, 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 preach the gospel in other parts of the world. There, there, there are organizations like Compassion International, for example, where you just give, you can give $30, $35 a month and literally change someone's life across the world because that can literally sustain them over there. And, and I mean, there are so many opportunities to do good with, this, with the, the, the money that Christ has entrusted to us and that those things... And God sees that and he's watching and he he sees the business and whether we're about his business or not. Jesus says, be wise, my church. Be wise. Jesus told this parable in Luke 16. It's an interesting one. I think it has an important point. In Luke 16, says he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What's the point? That's kind of an interesting parable, and it's confused a lot of people. But I actually think the point is, is clear enough when we think about it. Worldly people are shrewd to secure a place for themselves in the world. Worldly people are incredibly shrewd to secure a place for themselves in the world. I mean, it's unbelievable. Human ingenuity is unbelievable. The, you know, when the government creates a, you know, just one example, if when government, you know, says it's going to give away money, okay, for example, then guess what? You have all kinds of people and lawyers and accountants saying, here's what we can do to maximize what we get out of the government. You see what I'm saying? People see things and they are shrewd. People are, if, I, if I see a business, people will do all kinds of unbelievable all, and do all kinds of research and studies and, do all, and, and do, do all, go to great lengths to, to get the greatest amount out of this world, to, to have the best business, to make the most money in their business. People will go to unbelievable lengths to, to secure themselves in this world. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying people of this world are more shrewd in securing themselves worldly security than the, than the, king, than the people of the kingdom of heaven are to secure themselves eternal security, eternal uh, uh, possessions. That's what he's saying. He's saying, and so what he's saying is that, so it's interesting, the argument, because he's saying, He's saying, be like the, in one sense, he's saying, be like the world, but in a totally opposite way, right? The world is shrewd in what? In cutting corners, in finding loopholes, in doing whatever it can to do what? To secure the most for themselves now. Jesus is saying, be like that, but in the opposite way. Be shrewd. Don't cut corners, but do what is right. Help other people. Be generous. Give till it hurts. To do what? To secure for yourself the best possible life in eternity. You see that? Because guess what? Because he says what? They'll receive you, what? Into the eternal dwellings. Remember what Jesus said? Insofar as you have done this to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. And so it's, it's totally opposite. This shrewd manager did what? He, 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 he knocked off the bill, if you will, so that they would take him into their, their houses when he got fired, right? And Jesus is saying, look, you do good to people in this world. You be generous. You love. You sacrifice. You show care. You show mercy to people in this world. And guess what? They'll be waiting on you in heaven. And when you walk through those gates and you walk up to Christ, this crowd of people will come around you and say, hey, Jesus, he did this for me. Hey, Jesus, he did this for me. Hey, Jesus, they did this for me. And they will swarm you, all the people that you did good to, to receive you into your eternal dwelling. Because you sent it ahead of you. Jesus is saying, be shrewd. We're so shrewd in this world, but we're not shrewd with the next world. Jesus said, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. This verse has always stood out to me. Because it says the opposite of what I expect it to. 
I expect it to say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But that's not what it says. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's fascinating. It's always been fascinating to me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Do you feel yourself not longing for heaven, hoping in heaven, seeking the purposes of heaven in the way that you ought to? It's possible that the reason is this. It may be that your heart is too much in the world because too much of your treasure is in the world. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I invested every single penny I had in Apple, I would be very concerned about the direction Apple takes. If every single penny I own is invested in this world, I'm very concerned about the direction this world takes. But if every single penny I earn is in heaven, I'm free from the world. I'm free. It doesn't control me because the more, where I have my stuff invested is where my heart is. And so what does this do? I believe it actually gives us an amazing weapon to fight our worldliness. Because... Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means if we want to move our heart, one practical, concrete way we can do that is to move our treasure. We can move our treasure and our heart will follow it. So what can we do? Make a change. Make a change. Start thinking, start thinking what will make me what, what do I think will give me peace and comfort and security now? And start thinking, what will make me most happy a billion years from now? And it will likely mean, it will likely mean this. Maybe simplify. Simplify life. Drop a luxury or two. Drop a debt or two. Buy used Drop some things in this world that are unnecessary and won't last and pick up something that'll last forever. Pick up a missionary or a missions organizations. Pick up a needy child in this country or another country. Pick up a widow, a women's clinic, anything. Pick up something that matters to God, that matters for eternity. Put down something else that won't last and pick up something that really will last forever. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I guarantee what you'll find is that as you start pouring treasure into this or that, you'll find that you'll start caring more about that. When you start investing in others, you start caring more about them, right? It has to be, right? That's how it works. It's not just with money. It's also with your time, right? The more time, the more time you have invested in someone, for example, the more it breaks your heart when they go astray, right? Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we don't care about things as we ought to, what's the answer? Start investing in them. Start giving ourselves and our stuff to them, and we'll start caring about the thing that Christ cares about. 
And as we move our treasure, our heart will begin to move too. So number one, storing treasure. Number two, seeing clearly. Seeing clearly. Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, the, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I don't know about you, but when I've read this passage before, I read this, this uh, section and it's clearly, it, it's like right in the middle about storing treasures in heaven and you can't serve God in money. So it's like, I know this has something to do with money, but I have no idea what it's talking about. <laughs> what in the world does I being the lamp of the body have to do with anything? Well, here's what I think, it, here, here's what I'm pretty sure it is. First of all, in the context, we know he's got to be talking about the same thing. And he's, he's just swapped metaphors, right? In, in the first part, he's, talk, he's talked about our heart, which we just, we're more familiar with that metaphor, so it's just, it's easier to grasp for us. But he can't have switched metaphors that drastically when he talks about the eye. Notice it's both body parts, our heart, then our eyes, they're both body parts, right? And so, in the same way that our heart is our entire personhood, right? It's characterized by our allegiances, our affections, our love, and our loves and our priorities. The eye then is just a similar thing, but it, it, with a slightly different focus, right? What do we do with our eyes? We see with our eyes. We see with our eyes. We, and we know then that the perspectives and the attitudes with which we look at the world, right? Shape, 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 shape how we feel about things, right? How we think about things. When I see something, when I see something, how do I feel about it? In other words, what lens am I looking through? What lens am I looking through as I look out at the world? What, in what manner am I understanding the way the world to work? Am I, for example, especially in the context of possessions, it certainly means this. It's talking about covetousness, right? Do I look at things and think, if I had that, I'd be happy. I'd be good. I'd be secure, Am I, what, what, what perspective am I taking when I look at the world? And this is confirmed by the Old Testament use of the I metaphor. In Proverbs 28, 22, it says, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Well, you could put your whole sermon on that. But what we should know, and if in the KJV actually brings this out, but the word a stingy man is translated, uh, it's translated as stingy man, but the actual Hebrew says a man with an evil eye. A man with an evil eye. Now, what is that? Well, it's a Hebrew idiom that means a stingy person, right? And most people don't know that, so the translators translate it as a stingy man to help us understand it. But the actual Hebrew is a man with an evil eye because that, that's, that's, that's just their, their, we have expressions. Every language has their own expression. That's how they expressed it. And so what Jesus is doing is this. He's picking up on the, old, the Hebrew idiom, the Hebrew language that the people in his day would understand uh, that an evil eye describes greedy people or covetous people. And so what Jesus is saying is this is that the eye is the lamp of the body. The way that you look at the world affects, affects who you are, right? Affects your whole person. If our eyes are good, that means if we look at the world with a right perspective, not greedy, but generous, then our whole lives will be full of light. 
Our whole lives will be full of light. You see, when I look at something and I want it thinking it'll make me happy, then what do I do? I start wanting to get it. But guess what? When I think that this thing will make me truly happy, but then other people in my mind are perceived to be in my way of obtaining that thing, then guess what I do? I push other people out of my way to get that thing. James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that you covet and cannot obtain? When I want something, but I'm not getting it and feel like other people are standing in my way, I start fighting them to get what I want. If you look at the world thinking stuff out there is going to make me really happy, then guess what? You start fighting to get that. But then what happens is what? Your whole perspective is skewed and your, your whole body, your whole life is full of darkness. But when you see clearly, your whole, but Jesus says your whole life is full of light. When you see the world clearly, you see everything else clearly. When you see that life is not, if you, when you see what Jesus says that life, that, that one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions, then you're free. You're free to say, well, I don't need that. Yeah, you can have it. Oh, I have, I have plenty and they don't have enough. Yeah, it's no big deal. Why? Because my life is not the sum of what I have. My life is hid with Christ on high. And it all belongs to him. But if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So number one, we see storing treasure. Number two, seeing clearly. And finally, number three, serving the king. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The final verse serves as a profound summary of what Jesus has taught this far. Um, you know, some translations render that money, uh, you know, the word is mammon, uh, mammon, which really refers to not just, um, not just like, you know, the number in your bank account, but it refers to just worldly, just wealth in general, possessions and, and everything. And I think we can expand that even further, as we've said before, to not just, not just physical stuff, but really the entire system of temporal things that we tend to trust or find our sense of security in rather than God, right? It's so tempting to find our sense of security in stuff, and find our sense of happiness in stuff, thinking if I just have that, if I just got in this situation, you know, if I just, you know, or, or to think, man, if I'm financially secure, I'm really secure. There's lots of people who thought I'm financially secure and they really felt secure in life until a virus happened. And then all of a, all of a sudden, all your security washes down the drain and you realize that thing you were putting your hope in to make you secure was not really that secure after all. And Jesus would spare us that and remind us of that and tell us, don't put your hope in things that don't, aren't truly secure. Many people in these COVID days have found the true instability of the things in which they trusted. This world and all that is in it is fragile, uncertain, and fleeting. And it's coming, it's coming soon to an end. 
So Jesus teaches us then to think about God and mammon as two different masters, right? And this is, this is profoundly insightful. And so I want to look at it in some detail. We have an idea of what it means to serve God as a master, but what does it mean to serve mammon or money as a master? What does that mean? Uh, John Piper wrote about this at length, uh, I believe um, was in his book, Desiring God. I don't recall exactly, but is very insightful. And so I want to quote it at length. Okay. So this is what John Piper comments on this passage. He says this quote, how does a person serve money? So that's the question. It's a good question. How does a person serve money? He does not assist money. He does not enrich money. He is not the benefactor of money. That means he, you know, he doesn't benefit money. When we serve money, we don't benefit money. Money doesn't need our help. That's not how we serve money, right? How then do we serve money? Money exerts a certain control over us because it seems to hold out so much promise of happiness. It whispers with great force, think and act so as to get into a position to enjoy my benefits. This may include stealing, borrowing, or working. Money promises happiness, and we serve it by believing the promise and walking by that faith. So we don't serve money by putting our power at its disposal for its good. We serve money by doing what is necessary so that money's power will be at our disposal for our good. That same sort of service to God must be in view in Matthew 6, 24, since Jesus puts the two side by side. You cannot serve God and money. So if we're going to serve God, not money, then we're going to have to open our eyes to the vastly superior promise of happiness God offers. Then God will exert a greater control over us than money does. And so we will serve God by believing his promise of fullest joy and by walk and walking by that faith. We will not serve God by trying to put our power at his disposal for his good, but by doing what is necessary so that his power will be ever at our disposal for our good. And of course, God has appointed that his power be at our disposal through prayer, asking you will receive. So we serve the power. So we serve by the power that comes through prayer. And when we serve for the glory of God and we serve when we serve for the glory of God. Without doubt, this sort of serving also means obedience. A patient who trusts his doctor's prescriptions obeys them. A convalescent sinner trusts the painful directions of his therapist and follows them. Only in this way do we keep ourselves in a position to benefit from what the divine physician has to offer. In all this obedience, it is we who are the beneficiaries. God is ever the giver, for it is the giver who gets the glory. Do you see the, the, what Piper's saying and what Jesus is saying? He's saying, he's saying this. We, the thing that we serve is the thing that we think will make us the most happy. Why are some people workaholics? Because they think if I have enough money, it'll make me happy or it'll solve my problems. What does that mean? You're serving it. It's your master. Why? Because you think it'll make you happy. Solve your problems. In the same way, Jesus is saying, that's the way we serve God. The, question, the ultimate question then for, that everybody has to ask is this, what do you in your heart of hearts really believe will make you the most happy? 
do you really believe that God is able to make you happier than money? When you believe that, then you're free from the grip of money. But as long as we believe money will make us happier, then guess what? We hold it tight because we think if I don't hold it tight, I won't be happy. And God is saying, you have to trust me. I alone can make you happy. Let it go. Let it go. Nothing and no one can make us happier than God forever. It's a sure promise. It's a guarantee. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? In the end, money will let us down. But if we serve God, if we really believe God can make us happier and God is more secure, we won't be enslaved to money. We're free, free to give much and hoard little, free to be generous, free to serve the Father's business and not merely our own. So the question that we all have to ask is this, who's our master? Who's our master? Who are we working for? Who are we working for thinking It'll, they'll make me, it'll make me truly happy. I want to say this morning, you work for Jesus. You work for Jesus. You'll have the greatest happiness that you could possibly have forever. Forever. You have been faithful in little. Faithful in little. I will set you over much. That's the promise. Enter into the joy of your master. I think we all have to admit that money and possessions and things like that exerts a certain power over our lives, our wills, our decisions. And so pray with me that God would set us free. Pray with me that we would really believe that God is able to make us happier and more secure than stuff. Free us to be generous with what God has given to us. And that, let me, and when that really happens, believe me, the world will know it. (laughs) Because the world is scrambling as hard and as fast as they can to be as happy as they can in this world. And they don't realize it won't last. And in fact, the more, it's like a bar of soap. The harder they squeeze after it, the faster it's slipping away. Famous missionary once said, just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.